Good afternoon. My name is Ben Gwalchmai, and um, that's Joe Ivey, one of our Poet and City volunteers, who's entered in the last dying minutes of my speech, or dying beginning. Apologies, I'll start again. Good afternoon. My name is Ben Gwalchmai, and I'm the Poet and the City event manager for today. I'd like to welcome you all to this new audiences event uh, here at LSE's first ever literary festival, as you've hopefully heard already this weekend. It's great to see so many of you here and so many of you that I already know, which is grand. Um, and have the overwhelming response we've received in bookings. It is a pleasure to be working with LSE. In particular, I'd like to thank Louise Gaskell and her conferences team. I'd also like to thank LSE for hosting this event here in their wonderful new, new audiences, no, that's us, new academic building, and for kindly funding these events. This is the third and final Poet in the City event that we've held here this weekend. We also have various performances going on uh, throughout the weekend, so if any of you see our performance team running around, smiling at you, waving sticks at you, giving you things, encouraging you to not talk but talk, please don't be scared. They're there for you to enjoy, and in fact to play with, and sometimes, if you're really lucky, to sing with. Yeah, if you're in that singing mood, please do. Um, Yes, so uh, I'd finally like to thank Graham Henderson, the Chief Executive of Poet in the City, um, Vivian Roche, and all the members of the charity's New Audiences Committee, without whose work this weekend would not have been possible. Before I introduce this evening's excellent lineup of poets, I'd like to say a few words about Poet in the City and what it is that we do. For those of you who don't know us, Poet in the City is a charity that promotes a love of poetry amongst new audiences makes new connections for poetry, and raises money to fund poetry education, in particular in the placing of poets in schools. For instance, in the charity, we funded poetry placements in 25 schools in 2007. Uh, the New Audiences Initiative, launched in the spring of 2007, has also been an enormous success at reaching out to those who have never been to a poetry event, including many people under 25. Poetry is important both for the spiritual sustenance and for the education of human beings. Poetry is hopefully making a big difference uh, alongside Poet in the City by attracting both new interest in poetry and new sources of funding. If you're interested in the charity, please join our mailing list by filling in one of the many forms you'll be given throughout the weekend, but I would say Poet in the City on the top, and hopefully are a lot more approachable. Um, you can also join our Friends Scheme, and give your personal support to the work we do, both in society and schools. Poetry comes from a strong oral tradition. Over thousands of years, poets have played an important part in articulating the stories, values and experiences of their communities, as well as introducing some drama, entertainment, and a little magic into the lives of their audiences. Poets have been given a license to play with words. Alongside the power of the spoken word today, we can celebrate the playful, oral and performative tradition of poetry. I am therefore delighted to welcome four of the most outstanding contemporary poets. Um, we have André Manjot, Nandita Ghosh, Caroline Bird and A.F. Harold. Uh, firstly, I'd like to introduce... <laughs> firstly, I'd like to introduce André Manjot. André Manjot's prize-winning poetry and short stories have appeared in many magazines and journals, including the Times Literary Supplement, Daily Express, and London Magazine. 
a short selection of his work, Natural Causes, is now in its second edition. His first full-length collection, Mixer, was published in May 2005 by Xbox Press, and a book of short stories, Little Javanese by Salt, in 2008. Um, he'll tell you more, and I'd like to welcome Andre Manjé. I'm going to see if I can get the technology to work. Can you, can you hear me at the back? Is that working? Oh, fantastic. Okay. Right, well, I love to talk. Um, probably that's one reason I'm standing here. But um, I'm, trying to go, I'm not going to talk very much about my poems. I'm just going to give them to you. You can hear? Yeah, put your hand up if you can't hear. You all right, Mother? Okay, yeah, I'm getting older too. Um, and I'm going to read a bit about... Um, I'm going to start off with a poem that... Um, gives you a bit about how I got here in two senses of the word, how I actually got here today and how I got here as a writer. And it's called Biography and it's the story of my life to date in 52 seconds and it goes like this. Newborn, howling, Gloucester, winter, growing, crawling, running faster, prep school, coal showers, cricket, soccer, choir boy, quiet boy, head boy, failure. Train ride, moorland, big school, Yorkshire, monk priest, sixth form, no girls, rugger, Oxford, English, golf blue, loner, London, no job, Suffolk, dola. Uncle, windfall, cottage, writer, girlfriend, East End, big spend, over. Dustman, factory, caddy, searcher, cleaner, carer, dishman, worker. Novels, stories, journeys, teacher, new girl, actress, glamour, theatre, drinker, older, harder, weirder, shake up, break up, stranger wiser. Russia, Java, restless mover, notebooks, scribblings, patterns, order, poems, pain hooks, published, purer, meeting, marriage, mortgage, curer. Fifty, flat out, franker, feebler, artist, autist, stepdad, dreamer, Cambridge, London, fast train, sped it, checked in, sat down, stood here, read it. <laughs> This guy spoke only in haiku. He was terse man, but big in Japan. Um, yeah, yeah, save the applause then. That's very sweet of you. Um, I'm going to read two or three poems from the, uh, the book that Ben mentioned, uh, Mixer. Um, I had great fun researching this book. It's uh, 42 poems, uh, each named after a cocktail, and uh, set in bars. They're not all about cocktails, but the names of cocktails, as you know, uh, you'll know some of them, and I came across so many wonderful names for cocktails that suggested a story I knew or a poem. So they're about bars, barmen, but mainly the stories people are telling each other in bars. So it's a great excuse to put a kind of themed thing together. Uh, you get the, uh, the title, the recipe for the cocktail, and then you get the poem. And uh, I, I came across one or two really good uh, quotes from barmen and things about, about, about uh, drink. And one of my favorites is a New York barman called Richard Braunstein, and he says, the hardest thing about being a barman is figuring out who's drunk and who's just stupid. <laughs> and Humphrey Bogart famously said, the problem with the world is that everyone is a few drinks behind. Um, so I'm going to start off with one called Welcome Stranger, and this came about... Uh, from a true uh, article in a newspaper about the effects uh, on um, people when they'd had heart, heart transplants and I thought it goes really good with the title Welcome Stranger When she woke up saying 
I could murder a beer, the pint-sized dancer who'd never touched booze, but whose freshly stitched chest now beat with the ticker of a Harrogate bouncer. When the guy who had held every chauvinist view but newly plugged into the straight-laced heart of a primary school teacher now lay down his paper and smiled open-faced as his wife had her say. Both scientists and surgeons were stumped for an answer, went scurrying back to their notes on the donors, while two bemused partners wondered just where and how their soulmates had gone, who it was they were holding, kissing, sleeping with now. Um, Zipper. There was a, a cocktail I came across called Zipper, and I thought, well, there's only one kind of guy I can write about here, a reprobate kind of guy, and uh, this is it. If he kept it shut, his trousers up, his pants in place, his brain engaged. Known when to stop, not touched a drop, and spent less time, so well reclined. If he thought of others, loved his mother, didn't scram when shit hit fan, had stayed at home, paid back each loan, knew how to cry, and never lied, he would have been a duller man. We wouldn't miss his recklessness, his easy karma, easy go. And though he caused a load of grief, he was at least true to himself, his gods. What's lost isn't what he might have been, just what he was. And I'm going to look. Oh, where's Ben? You must, you must just wave at me when I've had my time, okay? But I think I'm. I'm think I'm going to stick to about 13 minutes. Uh, SW1. I won't explain it anymore. SW1. The room overlooks Piccadilly. All week it waits, breathing alone, waiting for Wednesday. The scratch of a key in the lock. He'll arrive first, bearing roses and wine, hot from the courts, breathless from climbing four flights. Fetch glasses, replenish the vase, fill the bucket with ice. But today, the week the clocks change, he stares long and hard in the mirror, raises the heavy sash window, falls back on the still pristine bed and empties his head of the clamour below as the lace curtains billow. She's already with him, the burn of her flesh, the moment both he and the room, all of London, fall silent, holding its breath, awaiting her cry. What can he tell her? When will he dare? How will he lie? Um, okay, I'm going to do two more poems. Uh, this one's about the consequences of losing your house keys and uh, how much worse it can be if they're not, it's not actually your house but it's one you're supposed to be looking after for somebody else and uh, this is there for that reason called the house sitter's apology and you've got to imagine the, the owners of the house have just come back to a scene of utter chaos and this is called the house sitter's apology <coughs> I'm sorry how the door looks now and if the press have troubled you I never really stopped to think and by the time it came to me the reason they're called cat not human flaps by then it was too late but let me just explain I got my head and shoulders through the gap okay but soon got stuck around the waist just couldn't wriggle back or squeeze my backside through at first it seemed quite funny somehow I told jokes to myself and sang a song or two but eventually of course I had a rather pressing need to call for help my head was in the hallway though so even if I shouted no one seemed to hear outside some students did come by at one point, but all they did was drag my jeans and pants off 
paint my buttocks as I later gathered Prussian blue and stick a daffodil between my cheeks. To cap it all, I found in time, they'd improvised a sign to show above the hedge. New street art, it read. The avant-garde returns. Give generously if you dare. Then Wollstoff and left me there. Well, people naturally began to notice after that. Though when I yelled, they just said, Oh, how clever. Very good. And threw some coins into my trousers. I only got out when I did because a dog came by and started licking me, which led the woman opposite to call the cops up and complain. They quickly came and, and cut me free, but then arrested me at once for gross indecency. Still, that charge is waived, a new door's on its way, and life's been strangely good since I mislaid those keys. Beside a fortune in my underpants, I found proposals, photographs, best of all, an invitation from Tate Modern. Exhibit here, it says, and bring the art world to its knees. <laughs> Thank you. And I'll finish with uh, a true story, again from this book, called Gary Owen. Um, Gary Owen, for non-rugby fans or aficionados, is, a, is, a, uh, is an Irish rugby club, and it's a move in rugby where you boot the ball as high as you can and your team piles forward and you bury the poor sod who catches it. Uh, it's a very sophisticated Irish move. And, uh, and uh, this, when I saw a, a cocktail called Gary Owen, I thought back to my school days where rugby was kind of my salvation. I went to uh, a quite an isolated school on the Yorkshire Moors and there wasn't much up there except beautiful countryside sheep uh, and a lot of monks. And uh, the monks taught the, uh, most of the, the, the school curriculum and the games. And this is a true story about a grudge match, rugby, first 15 rugby, and it's... Um, it's called Gary Owen. Gary Owen. The Yorkshire Moors, November, raw, hooped in red and black, we steam from the pavilion. Fifteen local heroes wreathed in embrocation, whooped onto the field with whistles, catcalls, stamping feet. The touchlines heave with teachers, parents, mates, plus two full coachloads up from Leeds. Today it's us and them, the toffs against the grammar, the papists be the prods our end-of-season showdown, no love lost. They, shaven-headed, big as bouncers, backstreet bruisers, lounge and snigger while we stretch. Beside them, it's a fact, we look like lightweights, kids v. men, but from the off, we're into them like terriers, our packs there first to every ball, recycling to the backs who scissor in the centre, spin wide to the wings, launch towering kicks that drop with ice on. Long before the break, they're five tries down, open-mouthed and steaming, 30 points adrift. The half-time talk's redundant. We've got them by the throat. Drop goals, force penalties at leisure, try out all our riffs. It's almost too predictable when, just off the pitch, their coach is spotted racing past the line-out, squaring up to Father Abbott, half a dozen monks, maniacal in wind-blown black, who've hopped and flapped like rooks throughout, like zealots crazed with self-belief. Go on, BH, BH, great stuff, crackerjack or CF boys, CF. Diplomatic shorthand that's finally prov provoked a claim of cheating, coaching, calling codes. It's mayhem as the whistle blows. We all pile in, and now the bloke's accusing them of language, unbecoming of a priest. Translation hasn't seemed to help to know their cries were only, bury him and... Catholic fury. 
But maybe he was wondering, as we did, if these wayward mascots, these worldly men of God, if their presence prayers or wild-eyed invocations are the reason why, for three whole seasons now, we're still unbeaten. Gracias. Our second poet to read today is a poet, performer, and artist. Her TV drama, Bangra Girls, was the first in the UK featuring all-female Asian cast. Her BBC radio series, Oxford Road, co-written with Mike Walker, won a Sony Award in 2005. Her poetry has been widely published, and she won the Edinburgh Fringe Festival Award for the Funniest Poem, and was recently shortlisted for the Bridgeport Prize for the poem, Strange Fruit. Her most recent performance, Mrs. Whippy Serves It Up, which combines poetry, surreal sculptural costumes, and real ice cream, was premiered this year. She is currently working on a collection of poetry, Hanuman's Child, with accompanying artwork. I'd like you all please to welcome Nandita Ghost. Thank you. Um, I love that true story, so I'm just going to follow with a little true story of my own. Darling, I want a divorce, I said. And when I got home, the mouse was dead. Its face, it was squashed up against a crumb. At least it died, having fun. You can keep our toaster. I'll keep the wedding coasters. And the poor mouse was actually squashed inside the toaster with its tail hanging down. And um, recently, I'm getting, I'm getting the sort of divorce and relationship separation bit out of the way first. I'll take a couple of minutes. Um, <laughs> anyway, I um, watched this program. It was about weddings and deaths on Friday night. I don't know if anyone else saw it. And it was, um, there were 25 weddings on the 21st of June in Bristol, and they'd filmed quite a few of them. And everybody was saying, it's, we're going to last forever. So it just inspired this little couplet, and, um, which is, darling, we were good together but I just can't forgive forever. Um, and this poem is called Strange Fruit. This man brings me fruit, asks me to marry him in mangoes, fills our fridge with peaches and nectarines, the soft juice kisses my chin. He brings me melon to soothe me when I work too hard, honey yellow cut up on a white plate. We mock battle over strawberries, whose countries are the sweetest. Neither gives in. This man begins to come later to bed. He eats oranges downstairs while I wait. He rises early, then sleeps on a cold floor. Secrets quiver behind his eyes. In the kitchen, skin on a pomegranate hardens. This man leaves a bowl of bananas and disappears. I let them lie then eat them, half rotten, half sweet. When the police find him, I take grapes to the hospital. He will not eat. He comes back with kiwis wrapped in plastic. The green flesh sickens me and the black seeds grit against my teeth. He tempts me with apricots and a dappled pear. When he screams at night, I offer lemon tea. I pick blackberries on a country lane, wanting to make crumble. I return to apples and silence. Now I bring my own fruit from the supermarket and I feed our child a little boy who loves mandarin, tangerine 
Clementine. And thank you. Um, this poem is um, on a slightly more cheerful subject. Um, I've got an Indian name, as you might have noticed, Nandita Ghosh, and I found that um, in life it's a bit of an occupational hazard that if you have an Indian name or an Asian name, people might mix you up with the other Indian and Asian names around the place. And once my boss actually even mi mixed me up with his secretary, even though I'd known him for about six years. And he was a lovely man, he really was, but I, I was more confused than he was, I think. Anyway, inspired this poem, which is called Name Not. My name is Nandita. No, not Sangita, or Rita, or Navita. No, I am not Gopreet, though she is a very sweet meat. But she does not look like me. Oh, maybe her nose, I see. No, I am not Padma Tantri Yatra, Bhagavad Gita. No. Strange how such simple syllables can cause this high confusion spat from the Sanskrit womb of an ancient dustful land. Of course, Sanskrit, a most refined language, very twisting, tumbling the tongue, and name is meaning many things. You see, Sangeeta is a song, a very long song. Navita is birth, new life. Well, her mother made that up. Rita, just Rita, plain but not simple. And Sita, very special lady, chaste and pure, without a pimple. Padma Tantra Yatra Bhagavad Gita Rama Pajama Jagannath Bungalow? Oh, how should I know? Nandita means Pavati, queen of the mountain, mistress of the air and arrow. All other names connect to her, consort to Shiva, lord, creation, destruction, destruction, creation. Yes, though I'm not big-headed, modest like Sita, sweet like Capreet. Tina, you like my poem? Oh, excuse me, you're Tracy. And that is your husband, Timothy, over there. Oh, his name is Anthony. Oh, no, tomato. Oh, Thomas. Oh, sorry, so confusing. Trigonometry. Oh, okay. English names you know. Strange how simple syllables can cause such high confusion. Oh, Pavati. Oh, Sita. Oh, Navita. Oh, Rita. Oh, Sangita. Nandita. <laughs> And um, still on the Indian theme, um, my father's um, Indian, and I used to, when we used to get racist abuse in the playground back in the 70s, I used to complain to him the other children had told him my nose was too big. And he used to say, um, tell them my nose is a magnificent nose, which is a quote from Serrano de Bergerac. Um, and it wasn't very useful, really, as it <laughs> And it kind of might even have led to being beaten up. Um, However, it inspired this poem, which I wrote as a birthday present for my father. And Serrano, you, as many of you probably know, is this really fantastically ugly knight. But he is, however, a true hero because he's witty and clever and brave, but he's never lucky in love. It's called This Nose. You see the nose theme does rather come up. I am Serrano, Indian styly. These bones are hinned through and through. Who dares to suck my marrow? You. Yes, I am ugly. My enemies mock my mug, my fantastic furrowed brow, etched with a groove of ancestors frowning whether at war or peace. I know only their sword held now in this great gnarly fist, and no one ever kisses me. Ugly I am, and this they mock the most, my nose. But why? It is so wide it can sniff every gamut from spice to roast, from cool coriander to hot buttered toast. From here to Bergerac, to Basra, Bangla, and back again, can snuffle up the seas of India, Araby, and Avalon. Such subtlety of salt, snout out the gall of bitter gourd, 
the earth of English churches in the rain. C'est magnifique. This nose is so long, a whole fleet of jets may soar from its runaway slope to the sky, great arcade of clouds, roam from here to home return, their destination claimed. A perfect landing. It is a magnified nest of vessels, a chamber extraordinaire, an aqualon, the lost fish. Why do you laugh? It is so dark you could meet the deepest night with it. I'm afraid. I am Serrano, and I fight, fight, fight. No one has spilt more than a drop of this blood, nor will they until I die in battle for the nose fights too. And you mock this. My nose is a magnificent nose. <laughs> Thank you. Now, um, I have written a new poem, especially for this occasion, which is very topical and a little bit contentious. So if anyone wants to come and give me some feedback about it, positive or negative, afterwards, you're very, very welcome. Um, it was in kind of inspired, if that's the word, by the recent furore about um, the Gollywog insult, where um, a certain media person used this word, which I actually hadn't heard for quite 20 years. Anyway, it's called To a Golly. Um, Dear Golly, there's been a furore. Someone used your name once more. Now you're back like the bad penny my granny warned me about. The old-fashioned kind, round as your innocent eyes. There you were, slumbering on a shelf in Her Majesty's shop, undisturbed, not bothering no one. Then they pull you off, start calling you names. Racist, stereotype, caricature. It hurts, stings like a wound. If you could bleed, you would. You thought you were loved for yourself, individual. Those eyes, those lips, that mouth, never meant to offend. Once you lulled children to sleep. Now no one wants you in their bedroom. Banned from Noddy Land. Noddy's still pining. So, it's off to the crusher with you, landfill ahoy. You won't bow your head in shame. Golly, you have your pride. There's still a spring in your step. You never call people names. It was your owners. You're only a doll, a jest from lighter times. But you make me shudder. Call back a landscape of language I'd rather forget. No one made a doll from packer, nick, packy, nigger, wog, blacky. You were special. You even had your own jam and a shiny badge. Never pinned to my lapel. Your name chased me round the playground with that light laughter skidding behind. When I asked why, you grinned. I felt as if an effigy had eaten my bones. I was not you. Yet who was I? Ah, oh, wait, here come your defenders, panting from the chase. This is not fair, they cry. You are cute and cuddly. You are even collectible. Hold the crusher. This is political correctness gone mad. And I was so looking forward to seeing you torn from limb to limb. Sweet vengeance. But history tells me that whatever's crushed has a way of rising up again. So, dear Golly, I have a suggestion. Made in the spirit of respectful affection. Why don't you get back into the colonial cupboard under the stairs? Little black Sambo's already there, slumped against the black and white minstrels, silent. It's not Gollyland, but I never could find it on the map. You won't starve. There's jam. Dull, eating the same thing until the end of time. I won't give you a cuddle. Golly, there's been a furore, and I don't want to hear your name anymore. Sorry your mate got the sack, as my granny used to say. Can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I'm just closing the door. Just say good night, Gollywog. Good night.
Um, I'm going to just read two, thank you so much, and that was dedicated to my sister Katie and my brother Sumi, I meant to say that at the beginning. Um, all right, okay, two poems to finish with, one a very, very short one. Okay, this is a slightly different subject, which is, it's called The Arms Dealer's Daughter, sort of fairly self-explanatory. Daddy goes to fairs a lot. In May, the carousel turns round, horses, horses, up and down. I pat Sophie number two, and Daddy holds me tight. Thunder stares at us. Ebor shows his teeth. At the bull's eye stall, Daddy shoots and wins a teddy bear. I've got a lot of those. Daddy says some people play with guns. He helps the ones who need him, like Jack the Giant Killer. Did Jack have a gun, Daddy? He was a little man. He fought the tyrant, pushed the giant, and the giant fell. Well, Dylan pushed Dante in the playground the other day, Daddy. Well, that's not nice. When Daddy comes back from away, he's tired. Flying takes forever, and he never sleeps. Mummy rubs his feet. Where's my present, Daddy? Well, this doll looked lonely, so I rescued her from behind the glass. Oh, I've got a lot of dolls. Next time, can I have a horse? Daddy tucks me up. I don't want Jack tonight, Daddy. Tell me the princess and the pea. How does she feel the pea all through the mattresses? Daddy takes me in his arms. She was a true princess. One day, I'll buy you a field for that horse. And she sleeps and dreams. The carousel turning round, horses, horses up and down. Sophie one, Sophie two, Ebor with his blackened eye, and thunder, thunder's wild hooves, and thunder like gunshot in the air and sea and sky. And I'll finally just finish with this short one. Forget the emperor, forget the priest, forget jihad, holy war, forget cults, forget the cross marked in the air, forget the suffering of the nail. Forget the territory, forget, forget the territory marked out, forget. And there's a goddess riding on the tank, a flower severing the earth. Thank you very much for the wonderful audience. Nine years ago. 
Um, and I'd obviously made a conscious choice because I've never written a poem about the beauties of a sunset, a mountain, or a rock pool. This next poem is about Disneyland. It's uh, to be included in my third collection, which will be published in November. It's weirdly titled Watering Can, um, which I think is largely about watching your friends and yourself turn into adults and make, you know, take different options that turn them into different people. Or seesaw. During your baby scan, I'm on the It's a Small World ride at Disneyland, cruising tiddly photography in a pinkish boat. Dummies with maracas doing the plastic poker that never leads to funny business. At 21, I'm elderly for this. While the doctor jellies your lump, my little brother, now 19 with a good set of shoulders, buys an ironic Buzz Lightyear gun, ironically waves to Aladdin's float, holds hands with mom, ironically, in the manufactured snow. My best friend is having a baby boy and I am on the Tower of Terror ride, dropping 13 floors with a seatbelt on. After childhood spent outgrowing ferociously soft drinks and school, you're counting piggies on miniature hands and I'm twirling in a teacup, an honorary child. In our training bras, we fought hard to be real. Just like Tilly from nursery, who filled her doll's nappy with peanut butter, crunchy, I got published during puberty, crayon wrinkles on my face, while you matured naturally. Remember when you unwrapped that tampon in the pub and dumped it in your pint? I went red, but you clapped for the brave white worm, absorbing snake bites. We were like Thelma and Louise, without the car. <laughs> now you're ballooning in that box of a town telling your on-off chap to stop laughing at toilet jokes and be a man I'm regressing meanwhile on Thunder Mountain there must be a pulley system one of us grows the other shrinks <laughs> about this next poem uh, if a fortune teller had a square crystal ball, they might forecast something like this. But it's not actually about fortune tellers, it's about videos. The videos. Someone gave me a video of your entire life. There's a twist at the end when you discover that you and your mother are actually the same person. And I drop out of the picture in about two months' time, only to return as a busboy who steals your handbag and uses your passport to smuggle loads of rabid dogs into the city. I'm one of those strange comic characters with a dead tooth. You get married to an organisation junkie who sells your hair to buy a stash of pocket calculators. And your daughter falls in love with me and I break her heart over a plate of tagliatelle. Then you get addicted to cough mixture and sleep in a sodden mighty with the windows open before buying a lovely house in the country. <laughs> um, I'm going to only read, only do one more poem, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a long one. And uh, I think it's about... Uh, how, shows how I use poetry to make decisions and to explain to myself and anyone who wants to listen why I made that decision. And um, it's about two very different events in my life. It's called This Time Last Week. Look at all the kids going off to university and look at me going with them, clicking my heels in the air like a sprightly orphan, chewing fancy pasta, sitting in this posh canteen, 
talking books in a room full of children always ready for a quiz. Quiz me on 16th century literature. Quiz me on Keats and Shelley and everyone. I love it. Quiz me. Quiz me. That's it. Right there. Please God. Yes, yes. Quiz me on Chaucer. I want to write. I want to be respected. I want to be a respected writer. I want to meet people who will inspire me to write letters to them when I'm 40, saying thanks for inspiring me. But who are these people in their iron shirts and their reading glasses and their well-funded quests? Are you kidding me with this? Where's the shining baton that was supposed to be passing around in some meaningful relay race in which only the weak will fall and the strong will grow six legs and bound across the country, spreading blissful reading lists and magical word potions? It's eight o'clock on a Monday morning and I'm twitching on a sofa fenced by learned, kind old men with flexible opinions and literary eye twinkles. This time last week, you won't believe where I was. I don't believe it myself. I had to drink warm milk and read Enid Blyton books all week to recover from it. It has poisoned my head against every lovely boy and girl in this college. It has filled my eyes with froth and scorn and I'm obsessed with the word banshee. A banshee is a mystical thing that wails beneath the window of a house where an inmate is about to die. I read this in encyclopedia. It wasn't the fact that I kissed a man and kissed a girl and pissed in a toilet that stank of sperm or drank until my tonsils sang or talked to a junkie or kissed a junkie or wore the same clothes for three days in a hotel covered with expensive dust for people with very expensive noses and no one cared about tomorrow or today or what their blood was doing to their brain or life after death or life after death or whether this was it. It wasn't that. It wasn't that I met some very alarming people with horrific backgrounds and unspeakable foregrounds. I'm not the daddy's girl nurse limping back from the war with blood on her bonnet and no more love for daddy. I'm not saying I've seen the ruins of the world and now my world is in ruins. But I stood beside that dance floor, eight o'clock on a Monday morning. I watched the nighttime people in their neon clothes, pumping holes in the light with their pelvis dancing. No jobs, no trains, no sunshine. Just midnight and this, midnight and this, alien face bones leaning for the joy, the albino boy with the red measles skin, the brain damaged man with a plastic wand, skipping to the toilets behind the human knuckle, the prostitute with the bald patches, swaying on the steps in a dead crayon grin, the Chinese family dying on the leather sofas, dressed in their best clothes, with massive gaping smiles that scared the eyelids from my eyes, the huge black man hugging his knees, desperately scanning the air for invisible wasps. And this was the chemical generation, apparently. And this was a postcard from Earth, the remains of a woman on a bar stool, laughing and laughing and laughing. Take me anywhere. Take me to the fiery pits of hell. Just take me away from that laugh. No more laughing. The end of laughter. Anyone caught laughing will be shot on sight. The world is no longer funny. Fuck funny. Fuck fun. Fuck life experience for a start. It's the life experience that did it. Jumping on that roller coaster that only very brave people jump on 
and that roller coaster is not safe and the machinery is fitted together all wrong and that roller coaster is only a roller coaster after all it doesn't go anywhere you get off in the same place you started only this time you're green and puking behind a bin but my god are you brave and my god have you tasted a bit of the banshee was wailing in the club that morning the banshee is probably wailing there again right now but I'm not in that club I'm in Oxford waiting for my university interview wearing trousers that make my bum look huge and most of these kids are older than most of the kids in that club but these kids don't sell themselves on the street for heroin and neither do I and neither do you probably and we're probably all going to be quite content with our lives and do a fair few things and see a fair few things and maybe if I get into Oxford I can write a strongly worded article about drug abuse and damaging sexual encounters and some people will read it and nod but it's not about that is it it's not about who fell off the wagon and who clung on. It's not about who took the high road and who chose the short straw. It's about that girl I haven't even mentioned, the one with the shaved head and the baby eyes, who smiled at me like an angel. And I would have taken any drug she cared to offer me, because she was beautiful and the world was hopeless and we were alive and full of hope. Mountains and mountains of glorious hope with nowhere to put it and nothing to give but my heart. Take my heart, and when you pull out your heart, the innards come too, and the dance floor gets messy, and people start slipping around like lunatics, and calling you a lunatic, and you start to believe it, and the hope drains out of you, and the lights go out, and you take the same drugs as you did when your heart was full of it. Oh, but look at these freshly polished kids with their harmless fingernails going off to university, and look at me going with them. If only the entire population could be as clever as this. What a big proud side for the parents of Earth. I sure hope the world is ready for all our powerful words and feelings. It's the start of a revolution. Hurrah. Maybe I should just sell pills to primary school children. At least then I'd know I was definitely doing something wrong. No point pussyfooting around the void like a nervous squirrel. Jump in or get out. Jump in or get out. I guess I'm getting out. I mean, I'm writing essays and eating greens and riding my bicycle to the shops. That's okay, isn't it? I'm in the right world, aren't I? I could still smoke cigarettes at four in the morning. They don't have any rules against it. I could still get a tattoo on my head. Probably not a tattoo saying fuck you all of you. But I could probably get a tiny spider on my cheek or something. been described by the BBC as a superb poet who keeps himself very busy. And if this year's and next year's schedule is anything to go by, um, I'm pretty sure that they were right. He uh, has an extensive tour uh, ahead for lots of poem events, and uh, he was, in fact, last year's Glastonbury's website, sorry, Glastonbury, Glastonbury's festival website, Poet in Residence. Um, so please welcome A.F. Harold.
entirely different set of uh, entertainments, and more suited to the end of the 19th century, but all the same, uh, entertaining. Um, I know it's only 10 minutes or so of me, and some of you may be thinking that's not a long time. Um, it will seem to be what I'm going to do, um, fairly similarly to, to my three colleagues, is read some poems and then sit down. Um, nothing controversial there. Um, I'm going to start, however, uh, the, very few people have said we have books for sale. Uh, this is a free event, so you haven't paid to come here. Spend some money, buy our books. Um, it's just an idea. Uh, this one is for sale on the Poet the City table out there, and some others on the Waterstones table. Uh, this is a, a book of children's poems. Um, it's my most recent thing. I'm going to insult you by reading some children's poems, and I apologise if any of you for this, but we, we will kind of go up uh, the intellectual scale as the next ten minutes go on. Um, I'm going to begin with a piece called Not the Best Poem in the World. Um, if, if some of you don't like poems, by the way, there, there are pictures in these books <laughs> as well. As well so, you know, it's not just one, it's the other as well. It is great. And uh, Not the Best Poem in the World. If my imaginative powers were stronger, this poem would probably be longer. <laughs> okay, that, that's designed to make eight-year-olds laugh. So. <laughs> uh, any, any snakes in the room? Any pianos in the room? Anyone got a snake at home? Anyone got a piano? Fantastic. Madam, this, this poem's for you. It's called A Nice Chief. When Sydney the Snake decided to take piano lessons, they lasted seconds. Headbutting the keys didn't please Mrs. Hosanna, who owned the piano. She slammed the lid, which did for Sid. <laughs> Um, one, one more poem from, from this book, Only Seven Pounds. Fantastic gift for small people. <laughs> people who don't like poems very much. Um, oh, we, we've just uh, passed Shrove Tuesday. This is a poem about pancakes. It's called Pancake. Um, at, the, at the bottom of the page, it's a picture of a fish. Uh, but there's a different poem there called Fish. Like the <laughs> at the top there, so don't, don't get confused if you're following in the text, page 25. <laughs> Pancake. <clears throat> Pancakes are good. Pancakes are great. Pancakes are food. I really rate. Although it's not really much of a cake when you think about it. It's more just a sort of floppy plate. Uh, it's, it's, it's round and it's kind of floppy. It's, it's like the South Jordani clock, but made of flour and water and Changed names, isn't it? What? 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 That's just nonsense, isn't it? You're going to muddle it up with your civet bang. And a bit of sugar. Perfect. Uh, this poem, uh, this book, The Man Who Spent Years in the Bar, also available out there, seven quid. Uh, I'll just read one from this. Um, not that one. Uh, those of you who don't like poems or pictures, there is prose in here as well. You can tell the prose, that 
to steal somebody else's microphone? I can sort with Andre, his worked. Uh, it's okay. It's well, well, maybe it's underneath the beard. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> button. It's the, uh, the hidden button in the chamber here, the one labelled on stroke off. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name's A.F. Harold. Um, it's only going to be ten minutes of me, but it starts... No. Um, uh, now I'm going to read some poems from the folder here. These are the poems that aren't good enough to be in books. Um, uh, this is one, I, I wasn't going to read this. Uh, I never imagined I'd read it, but I'm going to. Um, there's, there's an exhibition somewhere in London of photographs of red-haired people. It's been in lots of the press, and I'm, I'm a model in it, which is fantastic. If you want me, um, you can buy a print about yay big, beautiful, I mean, really top-notch photos. Uh, beautiful print, 350 quid. Me above your mantelpiece. On the other hand, for 50 quid, I'll come round for free. No, hand. Well, I'll come round for 50 quid. That's, that's the way that works. Um, but this is an exhibition about, about red-headedness, and some of you may have noticed I, I have a little red in me. Um, and and it's, 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 it's beautiful. Lots of lovely pictures of beautiful people. And uh, lots, of them, lots of them have told stories about being red-haired, about how they were bullied and how, how uh, it's you know, horrible to be um, and how you get treated. At school, I was never bullied. Uh, for having, you know, I didn't have any of these, these problems, so I was unable to tell any interesting stories to the people doing the exhibition and get on the video installation. I'm just a still picture there. Uh, I mean, at school they found lots of other things to bully me about um, before red hair became even an issue. Um, <laughs> but I did write this poem. There's a beautiful, beautiful uh, scene in, in the first act of Serrano de Bergerac where Bergerac's at the theatre and gets, gets into this argument with this uh, aristocrat and the bloke says sir you have a very big nose <laughs> and, and Bergerac gets really pissed off about this and he says that's, that's, that's a horrible thing to say how dare you say I have a big nose when it's just so boring you could have said your nose sir is so big that if you sniffed all the scent from the tulips in Holland would be sucked up and the Dutch would be very bored that's what you could have said but you just said big nose um and so I wrote this, this poem, because I thought it would be a good idea to steal that. Um, and th uh, this, I do this and one more poem, and then I'll sit down, and that's the end. Uh, this is called Serrano de Beard, uh, with apologies to Rostin, the Frenchman. One heckler among the many I've met will stand for all. This one, a fairly typical, illiterate, simple-minded, contemptible whinger, whose vocabulary stretches only so far and little further to be able to shout in a street or at a stage that one word, ginger. A mark, if I'm to interpret it in the manner I assume to be correct, of disrespect for that objet d'art that grows upon my chin. He manages just one word and attempts to wedge into his tone a subtext, which for clarity's sake should be in the text alone. This paltry, drunken, emasculated challenger, who from the darkness bravely acts as messenger, never quite manages to injure with his observation of ginger, except through dint of poverty of imagination. The I, oh, the shame should be associated with such an aggravation. As Dr. Johnson and Roger begin spinning in their separate tombs, wondering why they'd ever attempted to bring the news of the great wealth of the English vocabulary to the English nation. Look at this beard. There is so much more to it than that single word. Think 
of health and safety. Was it yesterday or the day before I heard that a dozen fire engines attempted to extinguish the orange blaze on your chin? <laughs> Faux understanding. AF's beard is just a phase. We must humour him. Nocturnal. Don't you find at night that it wraps around your neck and wakes you gasping with a fright? Paternal. It must be an heirloom. It's tatty, moth-bitten, but it was his father's and honour is as honour must as honour does. Take a horticultural approach. I'll sharpen up the secateurs. Or playful. How you must be the kitten's favourite. Hear the purrs as they skitter and pat about the bright thick fluff of your chin. Think fairy tale. It's like the golden thread that Rumpelstiltskin left in the morning. Think warning. That beard could signal red alert when all the power's done. Hygienic. You could sweep all dust and dirt before you with such a broom-like bristling growth and thus stay clean. Be kindly. Such a beard would give children something to grab between their little fingers as they're crossing the road. AFH. The nanny. Sentimental. Your beard, sir, reminds me of my Auntie Fanny's tea cosy collection, which never warranted much of an inspection. Political. Did your beard come to the West in a Cold War defection? Aquatic. It's like the beds of kelp that surely grow in the Red Sea. Mathematic. It's so expansive it makes you think that one plus one makes three. Philanthropic. Oh, monsieur, it is so kind of you to so copiously provide thick and warm nesting materials for all the birdies who have to sleep outside. Musical. With a beard like that, you could have a sideline selling hair or two to lady violinists who want to give their bows a touch of orange flair. Think seamstress. Is your beard what they make those waistcoats from? You know, the ones to stop workmen getting knocked down in the road. Democratic. Your beard's so big it seems to move by itself. Does it have a vote? Does it have a separate postcode? Do you sometimes wake up and find it's already popped out and bought a newspaper? A red top? Do you ever doubt its allegiance? Is it just another wretched red under the bed? Culinary. With a beard like that, you must always stay well fed. The storage capacity must be immense. Finding chips from yesterday, old bits of toast, carrot, celery, muesli, trout, salmon, skate, ray, pilchard, sandwiches of all hues and ilk, suspended water droplets, along with fizzy pop, milk, tea, chocolate bars and biscuits. You could crash in the Andes, cushion your impact by hiding in the beard and survive on the misplaced food until the rescue party neared. These and a world of other inventive remarks are what you might have said. Had you, the heckler that is, been in the possession of a well-read brain connected to a pair of lips and vocal cords to do the job. But instead, there's nothing perched in the space above your gob that spares a moment to spin cogs, grind gears, or as they say, think, especially when the vacuum there is replaced by pickling drink. So forgive me if I sound a trifle discombobulated when I hear you try to share your wit after swigging half a pint of beer, then in heckling loudly succeed in making one of us look the fool. I have a feeling you meant it to be me, but in fact it fell to you. So let ignorant, illiterate drunkards take their seats. And I say this, if there's a sober, thoughtful person here who wants to take the piss in a vaguely interesting way, well, stand up, have your say. But it better be bloody good and novel, or else you'll pay, not in the car park,